The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Powell. The benefits of car share for an increasingly dense and urban Auckland are really clear. Why own a car and carry all the costs when you use them so little? Why not go easier on the earth by sharing resources? Why not make more trips by public transport and only use a car when you really need one? Today, this appears the most obvious thing to do. But how about 12 years ago? That was when Auckland's pioneering car share service, CityHop, got underway. 12 years before smartphones and before a lot of the awareness for the sharing economy was built out by services like Airbnb. Today with City Hop in Auckland and Wellington, for way less an hour than an e-scooter, you can hire a range of cars, from little runabouts to great big vans, to completely electric Volkswagen e-golfs. It was founded by someone that's been at the front of a lot of change. Victoria Carter, ONZM, has been a lawyer, PR practitioner, board member, politician, and lately the first female chair of the Northern Club. Along the way, she helped get more fairness and kindergarten funding and helped make the Auckland Arts Festival and the now Spark Arena happen. To talk the journey, change and the mission of reducing car ownership, Victoria Carter joins us now. Kelly, Thank good you. Morning. Hey, thanks. Thanks for being in here today. Hey, now Auckland uh, is the city you've made your contribution in, but you're originally from the UK via Hong Kong in child modelling, yeah? Uh, well, my, my, my father was in the army yeah. and was stationed in Hong Kong and there he um, just met a, another woman and left my mother. Um, and back in 1969, it was very unusual to be divorced and it was incredibly hard for my mother. She was paid, a, a, she had to find a, find a job and she was paid a third less than what men were paid. And it was, a, it was a financial necessity that I had to go out. I was thinking, it sounds so glamorous, I was a child model. It was really horrible. <laughs> um, um, recently, I had to, to talk to a wonderful um, group of, of women, global women, and thinking about um, what I was going to talk about, I remembered when I was five, I went to see The King and I, and I don't... Hardly anyone will remember The King and I, but there was a song in it, Whenever I Feel Afraid, I Hold My Head Erect and Whistle a Happy Tune So No One Will Suspect I'm Afraid. And I realised, as that memory came through my mind, that it was a mantra for me as a five, six, seven-year-old. And I'd forgotten about it because it had become so much a part of me that make believe you're brave and the trip will take you far. And I now look back and I think it did take me a hell of a long way. 
Oh, wow. And, and what's it like looking at those pictures? Because I saw you, there was a couple shared in a great article uh, in The Herald. Um, uh, and and it, it does feel like such an interesting time. I, I look at um, some of the there was a there's a lovely lot of photos where I look really smart and gorgeous with the beautiful model standing beside me, and um, then there's a photo that I don't think was shared of me and my mother and my brother afterwards, and I look at my I look absolutely exhausted, and I look at my little face and I try to remember what was going what was going through that girl's mind. And that, that work uh, helped pay for the education in, yeah, paid for me to go to in Hong Kong and, and, mm. and great schools. And then you, you ended up with your mm. mum in New Zealand. And she was a really trailblazing uh, colonist and wrote about life as uh, a solo mother when that wasn't the, the normal fear of the places she was writing. Absolutely. Um, Valerie often says that she brought up a generation of, of New Zealanders and taught a lot of people how to parent. Um, lots of um, men even uh, said that they found it incredibly helpful to, to get tips on how to bring up their children um, and how to manage and cope um, um, as, as a solo parent. Um, I call my mother one of the bravest people I know, um, and I, I think I got an all, a, a lot of, of who I am is a direct result of that and of um, the second father that she brought into our lives, my stepfather, Pat Booth. <clears throat> and so she came to New Zealand with what, three young... Just my brother and myself. Oh, two, 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 yep. two young kids. Six and, then, and five. Oh, wow. And then with Pat Booth, obviously an, another um, very pro- prominent and trail, trailblazing uh, journalist in terms of um, the Arthur Allen Thomas uh, case and his work against that... What's it like growing up in a, in a family of journalists? You live and breathe the news. I still do. My favourite activity on holiday is to read the newspaper, the print edition. <laughs> um, I love newspapers. I love the news. Um, I, I, I'm sure I might well have gone down that path if I hadn't um, had um, perhaps... One of the things that I think Patrick really instilled in me was... Uh, how important it is that if you've got a voice, that you use it and you speak up for those who don't feel they have a voice um, or feel they won't get heard. And that's probably why I went down the legal route. Mm. Um, In my final year, um, I was um, working at the same time as doing my degree and I suddenly thought, I don't know if I can do this for 30 years. Mm. And I was lucky enough um, that Rob... uh, Rob Fennick offered me a job in financial public relations and I really enjoyed um, that activity. Um, and and yeah, the, four years later I started my own business and, and the rest, they say, is history. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and along, <clears throat> along the way there, getting involved in <clears throat> a different kind of service uh, in, in terms of getting involved in the board and organisation of the Kindergarten Association – how did, how did that happen and what did that yeah, lead to? Yeah, it was to? strange. I had small children. I had a two-year-old and a um, four-year-old. And funnily enough, neither of them went to kindy because the waiting lists were too long. Um, but I was asked if I would um, bring my marketing experience to the board. And yes, spent nearly 10 years or, or just over 10 years there um, and ended up being the president they, they, the work that kindergartens do is so incredibly important um, and I'm a huge believer that we underestimate the importance of giving every child 
an education or the start to an education before school. Um, those first five years, um, as so much science is now proving, are the most critical in a child's life. Um, and, and I think that we need to be pouring a lot more energy and effort into making sure that um, every child does have that opportunity. And one of the big results of your time there was a successful campaign to get the decile system Equity used funding. for schools rolled yeah, out. I couldn't yeah, yeah. understand. I mean, we had we we spent so much time fundraising for our kindergartens in um, Otara and uh, Mangari, and um, it it just seemed ridiculous to me that we had kindergartens in Remuera that were a flush with money, but um, we had to do something to sort that. So I was really pleased when the equity, um, when we were able to get the, the, low, the decile system working. Um, I think there's still more work that has to be done in the early childhood sector. Um, I think the work that teachers do, it's like nurses. It's, it's the most valuable work that um, anybody can do, and I'm not sure that we remunerate it appropriately. Hi, I'm Russell Brown, and I'll make a podcast for the spin-off called Actually Interesting. Those are also the initials of its topic, Artificial Intelligence, which is very interesting. You can find us on your favourite podcast providers or on thespinoff.co.nz. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism, you can pay what you want, but for just $8 a month, you'll receive a package that includes our first book. Check it out through the spin-off. And it's so hard as well. Like, it's incredibly I mean. valuable. I mean, we're all really relieved. <laughs> it's so hard. Boy, I'm so glad I'm not a teacher. It's, 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 it's remarkable. Um, mm. I, grew, I grew up with two teachers as parents, and um, yeah, uh, I, I don't know how uh, they do it. But... Mm, I agree. And, and out of that, like, kind of... Um, I guess stepping into the um, political arena a little with working through all of the the politics of a of an organisation that takes a lot of voluntary work and working with um with central government. That's the funny thing. I um, approached one of my, um, a man that I had enormous respect for, and I said, "Look, I can't get onto boards. I really want to. I've got all this." Um, you know, a kindergarten experience, and and people slightly mocked that kindergarten experience. But at the time, it was a fifteen million dollar business, had over four hundred employees, had over fifteen thousand stakeholders in the form of children and their parents. It was not an insignificant business. Anyway, he suggested that I stand for the power board elections that were coming up, and I ended up being the I think I'm the only independent to ever be elected to the Auckland Energy Consumer Trust which now has that ridiculous name, N-Trust. Mm. Um, and it was not long after I'd been elected that we had the big blackout in Auckland. Um, and I was the deputy chair and talked a lot to media about the fact that we really needed to take the power back, uh, power back to the people. And uh, the board then got completely overhauled. And um, not long after that, people started to say, you know, have you ever thought about standing for local government. There'd be, there was a view that Les Mills had been there for quite a long time and there was a view that maybe we needed to see some change and then people started to offer me money if I stood and I thought, oh, this is kind of serious. Um, so I did do a lot. I spent six months researching it, interviewing people like Sir Barry Curtis, uh, Sir Hugh Kafaru. I, I interviewed as many people as I could to understand the needs of the city. 
And um, I also met up with Christine Fletcher and said, you know, are you likely to stand? And uh, she said she wouldn't at the time. And then six weeks before the election, Metro came out with a front page cover saying that uh, Christine Fletcher was standing for mayor. So I felt it was pragmatic in the end that um, even though she was always going to win, there was no point in splitting the vote. And so I stood for council for the Hobson Ward, which is the ward I've lived in nearly all my life, and um, top polled. So I was there for, for two years. No, not two years, two terms. Two, two Sorry, terms. two terms. Because politics yeah. is such a funny, you know, some people think of politics as being kind of power, but really power is kind of being anonymous and being able to do things. Being in especially <laughs> local government politics, every single person at the supermarket, you know, you, you're owned by kind of everyone and everyone's with a water bill can come up and talk to you. And, oh, the squeaky like, wheel truck, uh, the rubbish truck. It's, it's, it's kind of remarkable how it's it's such a community mm. service. It's not really an exercise in power. It's an exercise in being owned by everyone. You're so right. I still get I still get people complaining to me because they think, because they've seen my face in different places, that I'm still on the council. It's extraordinary. What was it What was it like being in the council? Because, you know, as a you know, observer of the media and stuff, the way the media works, you only ever see when things go particularly well or particularly badly or when there's some conflict that's easy to report. Uh, but what, what's it like actually trying to make things happen? Um, it was really interesting. We were There was a lot of new councillors when I was elected. I think I was 34, 35. I, I was very young um, for council. <laughs> uh, I had campaigned on the fact that the average age of the previous city council was about 69 or something. <laughs> You came in with a bunch of friends. <laughs> Luckily, most of them been voted out, actually. <laughs> um, but because we were such a new group and because I'd top-polled, I was lucky enough to be offered the role of city, um, was an economic development and tourism and uh, uh, amenities portfolio. Um, and it was an area that I knew and that I loved. Um, and that gave me the opportunity to... to really do some to, to do some extraordinary stuff with my colleagues um, and we uh, one of our, one of the staff came to me and said that they thought that Auckland needed a festival and gave me the reasons why and said that it would be a springboard for our artists be a really important plank for economic development and and I, I backed their their judgment and um, ended up yeah being very involved in the Auckland Arts Festival. Um, we we got the first public-private partnerships established that saw the Spark Arena built. Mm. And that's something I'm enormously proud of because I think it's had an, a real significant economic impact um, for Auckland. Yeah, it, it's a great story, isn't it? Because it's, it's kind of public-private and iwi partnership mm. as well, isn't mm. it? As um, mm. Nati Fatua or Oraki, who aren't always mm. um, acknowledged for the work they do in the media, have given it an amazing ground rent Absolutely. deal as well, haven't they? Absolutely, it, it was they were key to the partnership, mm-hmm. um, and there 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 are supposed to be some employment benefits for their people, um, and 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 other. I'm sure those those they were written yeah. down, so I'm sure oh. they're being followed. Absolutely, yeah, and it's it's done magic things for the city, like you know, you, you, attracting kind of acts that never came to this country before. That's right. And um, educational, not just music. There's, I think it's been a wonderful facility for Auckland. And with those governance roles, uh, get, getting into them, has it, because you, you've continued to be very involved in, in uh, boards um, recently, New Zealand Transport uh, Agency, is that right? Yeah. Um, you know, hu- huge roles. Has it got 
easier for women to come into board roles as the numbers are still so wo- woeful? Well, they say it's got easier, um, but but uh, I don't believe that. Um, I never used to believe in quotas. When, when I was in my early 40s, I thought it should all be on merit. Um, and now that I'm in my 50s, I realise that merit didn't work. <laughs> uh, otherwise, we'd have more of us at the table. Um, so I feel very strongly that um, one or two women on a board is not enough. Um, and no women on a board is just ridiculous in this day and age. And I'd really like to hear the justification for why a board thinks that they don't need any women. Um, because of the, the viewpoint that we bring, you know, there's, and, and I also don't think there isn't a woman with the right expertise, for, if that is the reason that some boards might be using for why they don't need or want a woman. Um, as, as plenty of research has borne out, the some of the best companies in the world um, have uh, all have more than one woman on their board, and I feel very strongly that women bring um, bring a diversity of opinion to the table that helps make a board much stronger. Yeah, quotas are so interesting. Is it used to be that people would say, "Oh, well, there's a pipeline problem. There just aren't enough uh, qualified women for the roles." But now, if you look at like the NZX top fifty with the CEO issue. Uh, in middle management and senior management and exec leadership, uh, the actual balance between male and female roles is really good. But when you get to the CEO, it's kind of 49 to 1, or maybe it's now 50 to 0 uh, for, for, for male to female. So it's not a pipeline issue. It's, a, it's some kind of systemic issue. Yeah, something's not working. Um, and that has to we, – we can't keep pretending it's, it's not a thing. You know, I heard um, Patsy Reddy, our, our Governor-General, talk about the real risk that we fa- all face at the moment of backsliding. And I think that's a really good description about all the gains that have been made uh, for women and, and equality. Um, I know I know when I, when I, there's a part of me when I start to talk about these things, it gets a little wobbly because I know there's this great swell of, of uh, older men that, that are really anxious about this. Um, and there's nothing to be afraid of. It's not about patch protection. It's actually about making everything better. Tell me about the Northern Club, where you're the first female <laughs> president there in its history. And, you know, it, it didn't um, allow women until 1990. So that's quite recently in the scheme of things. I know, yeah, yeah. Um, I have sat on the committee of the Northern Club for uh, nearly 15 years and in May last year um, I was elected to be president and it's an incredible honour and I think the most significant thing about that is that it really does show that uh, the place has changed. And I had some um, male, young male friends who said they weren't going to join until I was president. So the day I joined, they filled out the forms and they did join. So I think in terms of dealing with perception, it's, it's been a really great milestone. And you'd have the ear of quite a few of the company directors and the, um, the people who maybe have male heavy boards to chat to there? <laughs> it's a, it's a, it, we've got a real diverse membership. The thing I'm most excited about, though, is the fact that uh, the fastest growing 
uh, parts of our membership are our young members and our female members. Women don't have a tradition of joining clubs, squash clubs, golf clubs. So, so that's a hurdle that I think we've um, had to acknowledge. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing being, uh, being president of, of what was seen as a male bastion. And, a, and I like to think um, that by being president of the Northern Club that it's a sign of change. What kind of things do you do to try and get younger members or people who don't fit the old boys kind of um, uh, stereotype in the doors? Um, One of the things that um, I've been quite active in is uh, arranging professional women's lunches once a month. And I always make a point of encouraging our women members to bring along a younger woman so that they can see what it's like. Uh, For so many years I used to um, get driven to work before I caught the bus to school and the Pat and I would be in the Princess Street looking at that building and I'd wonder you know, who went in there and what went on behind those doors. And back then it was um, male only. Um, so I think that the more that we bring young people in, we bring young women in, the more that they can see they belong there too. And jumping back a couple of years to City Hop, tell me, tell me what was the inspiration? Because mm. you were very involved with transport and the like in the city, weren't you? And so what, what, what was the gap you saw and what was the inspiration for City Hop? Well, that's really interesting. It actually takes me back to when I was on the council. And I just turned 40 and I thought if I stay for another three years, I didn't have confidence that I would be able to start another business. I think we lose our courage the older we get. And I didn't want to be one of those people that was 70 or in some cases 80 and still at the council table. I really think that people need to have a finite term and make way for other people to come forward and bring their ideas. Um, I have a bit of a nine-year philosophy, uh, three years, three years, three years, and so applying that to the council, um, I thought uh, if I left after after, um, six years, then I could always go back if I wanted to. And when I left, I decided I wanted to go back into business, and I was looking for something that fitted with my values, uh, very strong environmental values. Um, And funnily enough, I was on the board of Juicy Group, and Chris Alp um, brought back from Melbourne a newspaper clipping of a a woman who had started a car share company in Melbourne. And he said, we should do this. And I started to do a whole lot of research. Um, Interestingly, Go Get and FlexiCar both the car share operators in um, Sydney and Melbourne had got quite substantial government funding uh, to help them get established and local government funding and um, um, business grants. We never got anything like that. And yes, you know, people say to me, you were too ahead of the wave. I don't believe that. I actually think that the sad thing for Auckland was that our local government and government agencies uh, weren't up with the play and what was happening in the rest of the world. And now, 12 years later, Auckland <laughs> Transport is doing the exact same thing in Devonport, aren't they? They're well, actually, sort of. Yeah. Sort of. It's not really. We, we actually pitched to Auckland Transport that we thought that there might be a smarter and more cost-effective way for ratepayers to um, put car share cars at Devonport and get a bit of a ride-sharing scheme going rather than them have to find the driver and the vehicle. Oh, you're doing a taxi They're doing a taxi thing. We had a different approach. We'd seen it work overseas. Um, Car share's fantastic. You know, the the reality is with more and more people 
moving into our cities, we can't afford to keep adding more cars. But more significantly, if we're serious about climate change, don't just start stop using plastic bags. Think about every journey you're taking. Yeah, if you have a car, then you're going <clears throat> to want to drive it to whatever you do. And if you don't have a car, you'll take public transport or walk or a bike. Or think about what is the best mode for the journey that I need to do. And um, we've got many hundreds of people who now have uh, now either sold one or live without a car because we make that really possible. Yeah, um, I, I made that uh, uh, calculation and we got rid of um, a second family car because I got a bike, can take the bus, and then you can still take kind of one or two Ubers a week or one or two car share rides a week and be ahead of just your sunk costs of insurance, servicing, warrant of fitness, uh, registration. And it adds up to about a thousand a year before you've even um, put I would say it's in. more than a thousand. Most people's insurance is probably around five or six hundred and your rego is two hundred. Mm-hmm. Uh, your servicing's well, you'd be lucky to get away with less than three hundred. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, most people don't really want to add up the cost of their car, but I say it's an overseas trip every year. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you were to look at um, how many journeys you really had to take, you could easily afford to have our best car drive an e-golf at $15 an hour um, and you'd be saving money. And you'd be doing you know, the same good work that you do when you take your own bags to the supermarket. Yeah, and, and those prices, uh, they seem really good. So you join up and um, you, you've either got a free one where you pay a couple more dollars per hire or you've got a kind of subscription business where you pay a couple fewer dollars per hour but it's about kind of 10 to 15 bucks an hour to get uh like anything from a little run run around to a fancy new kind of volkswagen you can drive a seventy thousand dollar e-golf from for 15 dollars an hour yep and it's capped so the daily rate i think is around about um i think it's about 80 um but it's and and in the evenings there's a 60 percent off the daily rate so we make it really affordable for people uh, to not own a car that's Way less than an e-scooter an hour and way less than a rental car a day. How does, yeah. that, how does that work? <laughs> um, well, yes. <laughs> it's scale. Yeah. It's scale. And the more people that uh, do choose to live without a car, the better it becomes. And, and look, every major city in the world is not saying, let's have more cars. They're actually working very closely with their car share operators to go, how do we get more people out of their car and into using your service? That isn't happening here yet, and by the way. The, the, the support from local government. So, so how does it work? So I, I imagine that, you know, 12 years ago before um, people had, everyone had a mobile supercomputer in their pocket and you could, you, you know, run things mm. through the app. I imagine it was more convoluted. You want me to cry on your program, don't no, you? No, no. <laughs> No, no, I'm not trying to go. Twelve years ago was such a long time ago. But no, it kind no, twelve of years is ago. As well, yeah. When in, we in when we world, built yeah. when we built City Hop, um, smartphones didn't exist, and Tim and I were really committed to that's Tim Alp and I were really committed to doing New Zealand made. So we found an engineer uh, who would build our tech, and we had two computers trying to talk to each other. It was the most very manual process. Two years after we launched City Hop. Smartphones arrived on the scene, and there was no way our tech was going to cut it. So we ended up buying off the shelf, and it's one of the things that I now um, often refer to in some of my boards. 
that there, there is no sense in a tiny little country like New Zealand trying to build its own infrastructure and mm. tech. We're never going to be as good as the best in other parts of the world because they've just got so much more scale. We are better to get it off the shelf. And that's what City Hop's done for the last 10 years, eight, eight years. And, and, and time, it's great. timing as well, isn't it? Like, you, you can be being right and early is the same as being wrong. <laughs> I'm not going to buy that. <laughs> I'm enormously proud of um, of what we've achieved and um, the lives that we've changed and the good that we have done. Um, but it's been quite a journey, and um, it, the, that road has not been smooth. And that was, you know, as people have been getting more used to the sharing economy, like to say that you're going to do Airbnb 12 years ago would have been bananas, you know, like the idea of Uber, like uh, using your own cars for things. So, yeah, how did you build out the infrastructure? Because you need, you know, lots of cars. You need Mm. parking berths that are distributed widely enough around the city to be convenient enough. And I guess it's like a scale thing. Like it's only useful if it's, Within right reasonable you. kind of yeah, distance, yeah, uh, and and yeah. you can drop it somewhere convenient. So how do you? Yeah, because well, what, coming what, back yeah. to your first point, I never understood why. Uh, you know, we didn't have Airbnb at the time, we didn't have Uber, but I never understood why people were resistant to the sharing economy because we've got libraries. Mm-hmm. We had video stores in those days. <laughs> we yeah. shared videos. We shared books. Um, it wasn't that we share hotel rooms, but yeah. so it wasn't that foreign a concept. Um, but certainly, I, uh, our early adopters were the people were mainly businesses that lived in the and people who lived in the CBD, uh, where our cars were, who could see that this was actually going to. They were the early adopters, the people that um, had seen it overseas, and recognised that the, that the future was not more cars. And how is it going today? It's great today. I think um, it's been a it's been a huge boon having um, the additional resources of Toyota Financial Services. It means more cars. Um, the Eco Grant meant that we've got um, a, a lovely suite of electric cars. Um, the, uh, the awareness is increasing all the time. Um, the more cars that we are able to place on roads the more visibility we get, the more people can see that they now have a choice as to whether they own a car. The real hurdle for us back in the early days was that we were stuffed into a car park and the people who are biking or walking or catching the bus don't tend to go into car parks, so they didn't know the service existed. So one of the real struggles that we had in the early days was persuading the council and persuading Auckland Transport that we needed visibility. Um, and when you get that visibility, when people can see that there is a car around the corner, or if that one's gone, there's another one five minutes away, then they have the confidence to realise that it's very viable for them to live without a car. So now we've got small cars, big cars, electric cars, hybrid cars, a car for every journey, a car with baby seats, a car with dog hammocks, bike racks. We even have vans so that small businesses... I saw you had a rental car out the front today and I was thinking, I wonder who that belongs to. I need to tell them <laughs> there is another way. There is another way. <laughs> you don't need it to have it for a day or a week. You can have it for an hour. And so if you want to get <clears throat> – like, yeah, yeah, that idea of getting onto the road is so um, important because I guess it's a counter-intuitive um, thing for people immediately to go, well, we want to take a car park on the street. But in doing so, 
actually each car that gets added to car sharing schemes in other cities has seen kind of what kind of like a seven to ten car removal from the Sometimes general. It's, it's back to base. It's very important that it's um, cars that do round trips. Mm. So you pick the car up from that car park, you return it to that car park. Round trip car sharing is uh, recognised to take nine to fifteen cars off the road. Mm. Um, so that's really significant. Yeah, and I guess it takes a bit of getting head around for councils, where it's like, well, we're gonna we're gonna take some car parks, but we're gonna remove some cars. <laughs> yeah, we've got all the data. We can show them. We do regular research with our members, and um, something like sixty percent of them now have either sold a car, not bought a car, or um, got rid of one of the cars that they used to own. Those are very significant numbers. It is totally bananas, like all of the economics around cars, uh, to own something that people feel so attached to, yet they use for less than an hour a day on average. Yep, parked for 94% of the time. <laughs> it's bananas. Um, how does someone go about going through this process? So it's kind of app-led, but also is there a bit of hardware you have to sign up for as well? Uh, it's very simple. You just need to go online, join up to City Hop, and then your sent a um, RFID card. And that RFID card will activate any of our cars. And that what just lives in your wallet kind of thing? Yeah, mine sits on the back of my mobile. Right. And then you can, how far ahead of time do you have to, because I imagine convenience is like the super app, you know, the killer feature for, for this app. How far ahead of time do you have to book? Is it kind of like an e-scooter experience where it you jump on, on and the, on the find one? It depends on the time of day. Um, some... Um, if you particularly want a, a particular kind of car, then we do recommend you book the day before. Or, but you can book a year in advance for the car that you want. Um, the, the, and if the one that you do want isn't there, the, the app's really helpful and it will tell you how many minutes walk away is the next closest car. And so if you have one of the RFID cards and you just suddenly decide you need one, can you just jump on in the same way that you would with... Uh, finding an e-scooter or something like that, and just walk around until you get one. We, um, if you if you literally really wanted, if you decided you wanted to leave this office right now and go and get into a city hop car, we can help you do that. We can uh, remotely unlock the doors, get you a card that's in the glove box, activate that card, and then you're ready to go. Oh wow! Oh, cool. And then if you already have the card, even easier. Even easier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's so cool. And along along the way, like building something out that now seems to make very good sense, but must have seemed kind of unusual to a lot of people. Have people told you that it couldn't be done, or you know, did you did you have brick walls that you ran into at council? I think I'm really good at not recognising solid walls. <laughs> <laughs> I think about so many of the obstacles that have been put in my way over time, whether it was the indoor arena, whether it was the festival, whether we could make a festival happen, whether we should have an annual festival, um, and then City Hop. Um, I, don't th I, I think if somebody had painted the picture for me back at 12 years ago, I'm not sure I would have signed up for it. But once you get into it and people have sold their car and we had – when I when when we were really um, faced with with what what are we going to do now about five years ago, we had so many people reliant on us that I felt a huge obligation to them, um, and I really did believe that we were doing the right thing, and I had so much reinforcement of that at international conferences. Um, the other other operators 
used to um, pat me on the back and they were really surprised that we weren't getting enough local support. Um, <clears throat> we're now one of the oldest car share operators in the world, which is also quite staggering. And what advice do you give to people who are trying to make something happen uh, or be the first person on a board that uh, is, has been keeping them out or you know, start to make changes like this? Well, one of the things that I always say to people is keep saying yes. Um, you never know what is going to be the next opportunity that will take you where you want to go. So if you keep saying yes, it's like you keep opening doors. Um, and I'm a great believer in that. And and I think that uh, it's it's got a welcoming um, a, a approach to it. Um, I think being prepared, uh, that's one of the things that I think is really important for sitting on a board is being prepared um, Asking lots of questions, there there aren't dumb questions. Um, it's just more learning, um, and keep being curious. Keep and that's that asking questions. You know, why do we do this? And I also like to think staying connected to people is important. Um, and when I say that, I mean not just the people around the board table, but the people in the organisation. I think uh, having a sense of the pulse of people is a very useful quality to have when you're sitting at the board table. And having created some things that are, you know, uh, t totally vital to the city now, like the, the, the arena and uh, been through politics and, and created businesses and, you know, t tasted this um, success in these things. How do you define success? What's your what's mm. your version? I don't dwell. Uh, I, I'm, I, this may not be a good thing, but I don't tend to think about what have I done um, and I like to think that I keep on trying to focus on what is it that I love doing because I do think that the more we think about what do we love doing, the more that we will feel that our life is more complete. That's so cool. Well, thank you so much, Victoria Carter, for sharing your story today. Uh, founder of City Hop, the chair at the Northern Club, and uh, the member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. Thank you for being here today. Oh, I really appreciate your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing, and thank you very much for having us along and listening. Uh, if you are a fan and follower of the spin-off, make sure you check out the spin-off members, uh, a program where you're able to get behind and support and choose and shape the investigative journalism that the spin-off provides. <laughs> You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin Off Podcast Network.